Hey there, my friends. Aaron Henley here. While I was working on this episode, I learned of the tragedy that struck Kyoto Animation Studios in Japan. As of this moment, 33 people have lost their lives in a tragic, senseless attack. I wanted to do something about it. Currently, as of this recording, there is a GoFundMe hosted by Sentai Filmworks where you can donate money that will be given to the family members and friends of the victims. I've posted the link in the show notes. Hey there, uh, just an update. Uh, the GoFundMe is over, but there is a link from Kyoto Animation Studios itself that I've changed and updated with this episode. It doesn't have to be a large donation, friends, but every little bit helps. This studio helped create one of the shows that a good friend's little girl loves, and many more that I've enjoyed and have even cried to. If I can help them in any way I can, I will. So please, if you can go without that extra large cup of coffee or large pizza for a couple weeks, then I encourage you to donate. Any amount is appreciated. Thank you. Now, on to the show. Abound presents a Two True Freaks production. White Base Chronicles. A Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin Manga Summary and Commentary. Featuring your host, Aaron Henley. Hello again, my friends! If things are going the way I hope they are, episode one should be releasing right about now, and I hope people are listening to it. To all those who are and stuck around to get to this point, thank you! My goal for every episode is to have ten people listen. Why a low number like that, you may ask? Well, this is pretty much a niche podcast, but I hope newcomers to Gundam and Mecha Stories in general find the show and want to explore more of this genre. If you are a newbie or an old-time mech fan like me, drop me a line and share your story. If I get enough responses, I might make a bonus episode sharing all of our stories. Who knows? I'm still in the past and you're all in the future. If you're an international listener, then you might even be more in the future than others. (laughs) Now I just need to figure out how to find international reviews on iTunes. Three years of this and I still have no idea. Well, no feedback again because of time travel, (laughs) and that's one thing you never realize about podcasting when you start out or get back to it after a hiatus of a couple of years, and it really screws with you. I keep thinking about things I haven't covered at this point, and then, oh no, that gets released in a month because, hey, (laughs) I've written the script, I just haven't recorded it, and it's all confusing. (laughs) But that's not why you tuned in. You tuned in for some stranger talking about giant robots and teen angst that make the CW proud. So without further ado, take it away, Andy. Last time on White Base Chronicle. We lose a Gundam, and we gain a Gundam, while Zeon loses five Zakus. So I think the Federation is winning? Maybe? Fra Bo becomes Little Orphan Annie, and it's a hard-knocked life for her. Dr. A gets to gender swap for Sandra Bullock's role in Gravity. I'm not entirely sure. I never saw the movie, just the trailers. The atmosphere is getting mighty thin inside Seven, and Char's battlecruiser has just opened fire on it. 
What awaits the White Base and the Gundam this time? Nothing good, because the Red Common is about to take the stage as we begin Chapter 4. Following an initial missile barrage, the Xeon Battlecruiser begins a laser bombardment on the colony. Their intention is to drive the White Base out so they can either disable her for capture or destroy her outright. Captain Paulo Cassius decides to leave his post to command one of the few small craft that White Base is carrying to launch a counterattack while the evacuation continues. He places Lieutenant Junior Grade Bright Noah in command, and Bright goes pale and his green hair flies out of its normally rigid quaff as he realizes what the captain has just done. Yes, he has turned over command of his ship not to his executive officer, but to a guy who is literally on his first space cruise. Bright agrees with me, and he tries to convince the captain how this is a bad idea, but uh, Captain Paulo assures him that Bright would be in command only for a few minutes, and this is just to keep the evacuation steady, as he'll be back before it's time to leave the spaceport. This is what we call in the literary world foreshadowing, and raising the death flag on a character. Now, the character may not die, but all of us have seen enough TV and movies and, you know, have read enough books to know that now his chances are about 50-50. In the lower decks of White Base, I think, or maybe it's the spaceport, as I'm not entirely sure, there's a well-coordinated, organized, and completely calm evacuation in progress. Okay, I can't say that with a straight face. <laughs> the side seven inhabitants are reacting exactly as you think they would, just on the borderline of a complete Black Friday sales dash. People are screaming, panicking, and getting trampled. The few Federation personnel available are trying to keep the crowds in some semblance of control. However, they fail miserably, but I gotta give them props for the effort. And you know, thinking on it, nope. Nope, nope. This is a Black Friday sales dash. Capitalism at its finest, folks. And be nice to those retail workers. They go through hell on that day. I know. I was in the trenches with them and survived five of them. Navy SEALs Hell Week has nothing on that day. We see Frabo help three small children onto some sort of personnel mover. And you know, it's nice to know that even in the future, Japanese public transportation is stuffed to the brim and then some with human bodies. Two boys and a little girl are the last to board, with the girl obviously in shock and mumbling for her mother. Now, we need to keep an eye on these three kids. <laughs> They're much more important than you might think. I'm not kidding. <laughs> these three scamps are super important. I just hope they aren't as badly written as they were in the original anime. Tomino can write teen angst and war stories amazingly. And as to how Yasuhiko-san contributed, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm, I'm going to go with a like a Stanley Jack Kirby thing, you know, they're co-creators. Now, Tomino can write teen angst and war stories amazingly, as I said. Anyone under the age of 10, not so much. They just come off as annoying, and you're looking for the nearest airlock to shove them in. So, like I said, let's see what Yasuhiko-san can do with them solo. Well, as the personnel mover begins the trip to wherever it's going, supposedly inside White Base, a young blonde-haired woman asks for Fra's help in the infirmary to help bandage the wounded. We cut to one of White Base's hangars as it launches a little yellow gunship slash shuttlecraft. Hey, thanks, full-color digital versions. Seriously, whomever is fully coloring these pages for the digital release, you get a gold star. 
So this ship launches out of the colony on approach to the Musai cruiser. This gunship looks suspiciously like a raptor from Battlestar Galactica 2004, and considering this story originally came out in 1979 and the manga in 2001, a full three years earlier, I think we know who copied whom here. Lieutenant Dren dismisses it as a simple fly and orders his crew to swat the pest. The cruiser fires a fusillade of missiles that would have torn the gunship into shreds, but this plucky little ship has one of the best pilots in the Federation at the controls. We even get a little backstory about Captain Cassius, as he states the first ship he ever commanded was a little torpedo boat similar to this. Now, just to put this into perspective, this thing only holds about three people and can't be more than, I don't know, 20, 30 feet stem to stern. So it's pretty small. The Firebird, because hey, a craft this cool deserves a name, launches her launches her torpedoes at the cruiser, and while all hit, they only do minimal damage. She banks for a second pass and empties everything she's got at the cruiser, raining fire and explosions up the Musai's beam, shaking the entire cruiser. The Xeon returned fire and managed a direct hit on the Firebird, damaging one of her engines. The damage is severe enough that the crew have to bring her in while they still can. Captain Cassius is impressed at both the little craft and her pilot before he coughs up a large spittle of blood that plasters the inside of his helmet a deep scarlet. Uh, apparently that hit from the Musai cruiser sent some shrapnel through into the cockpit and a human body is a lot frailer a human body is a lot frailer than steel battle armor. I think Captain Paulo Cassius' survival odds just went from 50-50 to 80-20 against. The Firebird makes an emergency landing on the deck, and the corpsmen immediately begin to rush Captain Paolo into sickbay for surgery. Before they can, however, the captain gives one final order to the Firebird's pilot. Take care of the refugees and the Gundam. Huh, it says a lot about the captain that, even though he's potentially dying, he put the refugees first over the Gundam, doesn't it? Doesn't it, Dr. Ray? Hmm? Hmm? Oh, wait. He's in space. He can't hear me right now. Never mind. The captain pauses just long enough to ask for the pilot's name, and the pilot, Sergeant Rio Jose, gives a hearty aye-aye to his captain as the medics rush the captain away. Now, just a quick sign-out about Ryu. First, he's a bulky Hispanic man, one of the few I can think of in an anime from about this era, so that's pretty awesome. Second, he's not drawn as being a manly man of muscles or even very attractive in a manga which is full of nothing but attractive people. He's definitely a blue-collar kind of guy, and someone who you'd want to have a beer with after working at a construction site. Third, if I was Hispanic, I could maybe pull off a Ryu cosplay. I'm not, so I have to settle for a Porkins cosplay. Seriously, Rebel Pilot uniforms are about the only cosplay I could fit into and not be judged. Finally, Ryu will go on to be the mentor-slash-big brother figure for a lot of our cast. The closest analogy I can come to is he's the Rhinox slash Ironhide of the group. But for those of you who aren't Transformers fans, he's the Fonzie of our group. Back on Side 7, Fra Bo and the Blonde Woman. Okay, I'm going to just take a moment here and, and cut away from the synopsis because there may be a question about why I keep referring to people in generalities and not by name. 
I do know all these characters and their names, but I'm trying my best to keep it unrevealed until the story tells us. Does it make sense? Honestly, I don't know. Should I keep doing it or just reveal names as soon as a character is introduced? Let me know. I mean, you took the time to listen to this show. The least I can do is make it as painless for you as possible. Let's get back to the synopsis. So Frabo and the blonde woman are driving uh, ambulance down the deserted streets of the colony in an effort to pick up any stragglers before the oxygen completely runs out. They manage to find members of a scattered family and reunite them, and it's actually a pretty touching scene. Then the very next panel proceeds to rip the heart out of the reader as we see the ambulance drive past some pet dogs enjoying a tip, enjoying the contents of a tripped-over trash can. And we all know what fate has in store for them. To be honest, I, while reading this, I haven't felt this bad since the first ten minutes of Up, and that turned me into an emotional wreck for weeks because the elderly couple looked a lot like my grandparents. <sighs> Thanks, Pixar. I thought your movie was about a house that flew with balloons and a talking dog, not an emotional gut punch that required therapy services afterwards. So my headcanon, just to get through this little scene and not have to require any mental therapy, is that these two dogs and any other pets remaining on the station are saved by Crypto the Super Dog. And he gave them pet-shaped pet spacesuits, and now I can continue with this show. Also, there are pets and birds and an small animals in space. Sure, you could say they raised them artificially to birth in the colonies, but I prefer the idea of space arcs loaded with animals being shot into orbit. Why? Oh, oh, we'll get to that much later, but I promise there is a payoff for this little, this little tangent. And also, it does say a lot that a panel, I mean, it's just a single panel with two dogs. It affected me more than the narration in a few pages that state that half of humanity was killed within a month. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that fictional dogs delivered more emotional impact than fictional people dying, I'm going to leave to the listener to discern. So as the two women drive through the abandoned neighborhood, they pass Frost's house, and we get a little flashback of the last thing her mother said to her before this day went straight to hell. It was actually something rather simple. Remember to pick up detergent from the supply drop. Okay, Mom. Bye. That's it. I mean, that's it. What, what do you even say about this? And honestly, I tried various things in the script. I've tried uh, commentary. I've tried making jokes to offset the horror. And, really, all I can come up with is, war is the definition of tragedy. Tears running down her face, Frog continues shouting for survivors over the ambulance's PA system. Some debris shifts, and a little round buddy hops down a pile of debris, and Frog rushes out of the ambulance to pick up Haro. It's actually at this point that I firmly believe that Haro is really Frog's robot, and not Amaro's, since... Pretty much for the rest of the series, Haro sticks with her and not Amaro. Despite what Zeta Gundam, the sequel series, may say. Continuing on, they are waved down by a tall, thuggish-looking man I'm going to call Biff and a short, stocky sidekick named Needles. Fra initially offers them a ride because she's a good girl, but Biff wants them to load up all his and Needles' stuff, which has filled the back of his broken-down pickup. Since, you know, this 
crap would take up any extra room for refugees, and I'm pretty sure actually pushed out the ones already in the ambulance, Frog refuses. She's more than happy to save them, of course, but leave the stereo behind. Biff isn't having this, as he loves his subwoofers too much, and he starts threatening her and grabs Frost's jacket. He's actually about ready to steal the ambulance and leave, leaving the girls in the dust, but the blonde woman comes to her defense and pulls a gun on him. She then proceeds to fire a few warning shots at Biff and Needles, forcing them back. Didn't even give them a word of warning until after the gunshots. So the two women now get into the ambulance and drive off, leaving the two thugs behind. The woman driving now tells Frog not to look back at the now pleading men, and we see just how serious she is when she says it'll suit them best if they end up as space dust. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. The blonde-haired lady is compassionate to the needy, but if you push the innocent around, she has no problem pulling a gun on you and using it. She may not kill you, but she has no problem using the appropriate level of force to stop a threat as her ice-cold blue-eyed gaze stares at you. What could possibly have made you this way, very attractive blonde medical woman? Also, I don't recall any classes in nursing school that teaches you how to shoot a gun like a pro, so where and why did she pick that skill up? There's layers to this character, and... I'm going to spoil something real quick. We have just met our secondary protagonist. So the ambulance returns to the space dock, and we see a purple-haired young man holding the elevator door open and tries to keep people moving because they're using up all the air and, you know, he'd like some. Well, blonde-haired woman is having none of this kid's crap and slaps him with the backhand of justice! Wait, wait, whoa, whoa, wait! I thought that wouldn't be showing up for a little while longer and with another character. <laughs> Every Gundam fan knows what I'm talking about, but yeah, it has arrived early. What are you doing to me, Yasuhiko Sensei? My, my world is upside down! <laughs> In fact, this blonde-haired woman hits this kid so hard that she breaks his nose, calls him a weakling, insults his manhood pretty sure in every way possible, says he's acting like a juvenile delinquent, which actually I guess is a much harsher term in Japanese culture because in English it was only written as the letters JD and had to and I had to look it up. And really it doesn't come off that well as an English insult. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a culture okay. And then walk and then she walks away without a backward glance. Okay. We have even more to unpack with this woman. First, you know, I wonder if she's seeing anyone. For a fictional character, she, for a fictional character... She's hot. Holy crap, the irredeemable shag just showed up. I and has gone. Apparently, anytime you talk about a hot uh, illustrated character, he shows up. I don't... It's scary, okay? <laughs> I mean, I'm not even a part of the Fire and Water po uh, Podcast Network, which can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Seriously, if I was going to have a podcast talking about Aquaman and Firestorm, the nuclear man, I couldn't think of a better name, but they beat me to it. Okay, and second... We now have a total of three slaps on the official White Base Chronicles slap-a-meter. 
We find out that the kid's name is Kai and that the blonde woman's name is Sayla. Kai stalks away angry, wondering just who the hell that woman thinks she is, and no, no, she's not Simone from Gurren Lagann, but she could definitely be a gender swap, and I'd be okay with that. But isn't the story about a different giant robot? You know, the one that formed the foundation for that future anime? Maybe we better go check in on, check in with him. We cut to Amuro piloting the Gundam to White Base's hangar leaving the ground crew wondering just how the heck it's doing that since the last thing they knew was that it was supposed to be coming by the train crawler. As news reaches the bridge, everyone breathes a sigh of relief, including Captain Paulo Cassius, lying, who's laying on a cot next to the command chair instead of, oh, I don't know, being in the trauma ward of the White Bay sick bay under intense medical supervision. He asks Bright to get into contact with the Gundam and its pilot, Lieutenant Junior Grade Willie Kemp. Now, I'm going to be honest. We actually did see Lieutenant Kemp back in the administration complex, right when Gene Zaku decided to go all Hulk smash on it. I really didn't comment on it because there was enough going on, and this guy shows up for literally three panels, doesn't even get a face since he's in his full pilot gear and the visor is reflecting most of the light, and then he dies in the third panel. And so, you know, I just didn't want to distract from the more important events that were going on. Also, I have to apologize. If I sound a little nasally, I'm fighting either a cold or some allergies. So if I don't sound right, I, I do apologize. Where was I? Yes. So, now, Bright gets his second cardiac arrest of the day, when instead of Lieutenant Kemp on the White Base's communications monitor, it's some punk kid driving the most classified piece of military equipment the Federation currently has. Amaro begins talking back to Bright about how he doesn't know where the original pilot is, that he's the one who took out the two Zakus, and, you know, Bright should just get off his back, because, hey, he's got this, dude. We're just going to put this interaction between Bright and Amuro in our back pocket for later because, uh, yeah, we're starting, we're going to start cocking Chekhov's palm right here. <laughs> Captain Paulo has a moment of clarity through the fog of painkillers that it doesn't really matter who's piloting the Gundam right now. All that matters is getting the thing on the ship and getting off the colony. At that moment, the White Base's bridge suddenly becomes a Starbucks circa 1996, where everyone meets up as Frabo and Sela arrive. Fra wonders just what Amuro is doing, and Sela remarks that Fra didn't tell her that her friend was the Gundam's pilot. Okay, t time out here, time out, and why am I doing the T-cross with my hands when this is an audio medium? Two things here. First, how did Frabo and Sela just magically arrive on White Base's bridge? We're gonna come back to this later, but it's just... It, it bugs me. Second, how the heck does Salem know what the Gundam is, or that this robe, that this mobile suit is even called a Gundam? I have looked back and forth through the scene, and any character that mentions the word Gundam does so prior to Sela and Fa arriving on the bridge. So unless Sela has supernatural hearing or preternatural, wait. Okay, moving on. 
So Bright gives Amuro directions to the hangar, and Amuro is all snooty. Yes, sir, Lieutenant Bright, sir. Right away, sir. Would you like me to wipe your bum too, sir? I'm 15, and I've killed two people today within five minutes of each other. How many have you killed, Lieutenant Junior Gray Bright Noah? Wow, my allergies actually came in handy for <laughs> at least one thing. Bright Noah looks down in his slightly twitching right hand and goes, No, no, not yet. Not yet. It's not time. Now, like I said, those familiar with Mobile Suit Gundam know exactly what I'm talking about. And <laughs> also, as if all the current crises weren't enough, Bright suddenly has another iron tossed into the fire. Apparently the helmsman, and I'm using quotes here, manning the wheel... And no, I'm not kidding. This is literally an old-timey ship's wheel with hand spokes. And how that works on a space battleship that can move in three dimensions, all I can say is space magic? Well, wait, that that's actually a thing in this story. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. And... This guy manning the helm is apparently the understudy to the helmsman, who is apparently killed, along with most of the White Base's officers, off-panel during the Moose Eyes bombardment. So, apparently White Base is so new that the driver's manual hasn't been written yet. However, we get a scene reminiscent of the 2009 Star Trek movie, where that incompetent male officer is replaced by a much more competent female officer. Okay, so in this version, she's a civilian right now, but... She's my waifu for this series, so, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to Mariah Yashima. Sure, right now she only has a commercials driver's license for space trucks, but it's a sight better than petty officer quakes in my boots. Oh, Mariah is also apparently the daughter of a very important officer or politician. I actually hope to find out more about that later, who was a close friend of Captain Paolo's but was killed during the colony attack. So, because of nepotism and lack of options, Captain Paolo entrusts the ship to Mirai. I may be coming off snarky, but trust me, Mirai can fly rings around Sulu with a ship that's even bulkier than the Enterprise. I mean, at least the Enterprise was semi-aerodynamic for atmospheric cruising. The White Base is a flying brick. Bright bites his tongue and suffers his third cardiac arrest for the day. I'm pretty sure he's developing an ulcer right now, as he is seriously frazzled. Final preparations are made as White Base aligns herself for exiting the colony. We get a little status update on the colony, and that the oxygen is just about completely dis depleted. All I can say is, Biff and Needles, you deserved it. Trying to assault a 16-year-old girl whose entire family just died, Sailor was right to leave you two. The Moose-sized gunners were accurate at hitting their targets, which actually puts them miles ahead of stormtroopers because, again, these are just random grunts, They act, but they can hit what they're aiming at. Damaging the spaceport, but leaving the white base able to leave the colony, only to end up in the clutches of its waiting turrets. Why they just didn't collapse the entrance to the colony and, oh, I don't know, trapping the ship inside, I'm not well-versed in space military tactics, so I have no answer for that question. It just kind of bugs me, because, you know, you already blew a hole in the colony. It shouldn't be that hard to make it a little bigger to get a spaceship inside. Well, maybe there's gravity or something. I'm not sure. 
Bright orders two ensigns who we'll be seeing a lot of, but don't know their names yet. And actually, I have read so far ahead that I'm in the third book and just now get their names. So, <clears throat> I'm going to break my little rule here because we see these guys a lot and they deserve names. So, <clears throat> they're the radar operators and navigators and it's kind of hard to tell who does what as it seems to interchange duties. But I'm going to say... We have Radar Operator Bill and Chief Navigator Ted. Take a good look at these two boys. They're going to be around a while. They also sit in a position above the captain's chair, and, you know, that's actually pretty neat. Doesn't make a lick of sense, but it's pretty neat. As the ship proceeds to move out at one core impulse power, because, hey, thrusters only in space dock is for noobs, we cut to the Musai. A certain helmeted masked man with a deep-seated obsession with the color red prepares to enter the battlefield and is relishing the opportunity to break the Federation's newest toy. Char is not the only one getting his Union battle ready, as we cut back to the white base where we see the Gundam getting its sweet new Vernier thruster backpack that makes it go way faster and actually can maneuver in space. The Gundams also issued a beam rifle because the Vulcan guns are shot because some mook overheated them into slag by holding down the firing button long after they were empty. Huh, I wonder who that was. The Gundam is loaded into a launch catapult, and I love this advice one of the techs gives Amaro. Pretend it's a ski lift and keep your chin tucked in. Amaro's reply is a classic, well, what's a ski lift? Because, and you know this actually makes sense, he grew up in space. After figuring out the proper way to buckle his seatbelt, which is kind of weird, again, I'll admit, because we see him strapped in earlier in it's since he's gotten in the thing, but I don't know, maybe he was just sitting on the leg restraints or something, and it's not really clear, and I'm not... It's a minor nitpick, but that's part of my job, unfortunately. Mirai, who has I <laughs> admitted to some personal bias, but... I will also freely admit is one of the best pilots in science fiction, All, because I'd like to see Solo make a skyscraper-sized battleship drift into a skid, because she is going to do that, along with something very special that I have something saved specifically for. And in fact, it was one of the first things I did when I came up with the idea for the show. She eases the ship out of the colony, and it's hard to believe that only a few hours ago this very ship was delivering groceries and supplies to a the populace, and now it's their only means for survival, isn't it? Bright gives Amaro his marching orders, and Amaro, like any moody teenager being told what to do, reacts exactly how you would expect a moody teenager would. Well, you're not my dad. You're just the guy dating my mom. I know what I'm doing. I read the manual to this thing. What did you do, Bright? Oh, you mean not getting my dad blown into space? It wasn't my fault a Zaku I cut in half exploded. It's not like I was trained or anything. I just broke into secure military databases. Bright, who's now in command of the most advanced Federation starship, his captain probably dying next to him, is now responsible for the lives of thousands of civilian refugees, is worried about the understaffed ship with a crew of trainees and civilian volunteers going up against a fully armed and well-trained enemy cruiser, now has to deal with an emotional 15-year-old. And he ain't having any of Armro's BS today. 
as he starts arguing with Armuro and tells him this is real life and not a game with people's lives at stake, including people Amuro supposedly cares about, and I actually want to side note here and emphasize the supposedly part, Sayla takes the initiative and occupies the communication station to handle things with Amuro so Bright can concentrate on captaining. Bright, and me, look a little dumbfounded and wonders just what supreme being he ticked off to have his day go like this and allow someone he doesn't know and has no idea of her background to handle shipwide communications. If anything, he should be a mite suspicious about her since she knew what the Gundam is. Unless he was too busy yelling into his ship's phone and he just missed it. Another side note, most of Bright's... Most of the scenes of Bright, quote, in action... Is this story involves him yelling into a telephone hand into a telephone handset, giving orders. Since the bridge doesn't have a large crew slash CIC like the Enterprise to handle things, so Bright is both captain and tactical officer for this story. In fact, he might be the only character in fiction who makes screaming into a phone dramatic, and I have to give him props for that. Over at the comm station, Sayla mentions the limited ammo the bean rifle has. <laughs> we will be coming back to that in a bit, trust me. And Amro is suddenly all cheery at having a hot, blonde, slightly older woman who looks really hot in a red jumpsuit telling him what to do instead of a green-haired older brother middle management type. To be fair, I'd probably feel the same in Amro's shoes, but Bright is just grumbling at how the addition of a second X chromosome and a nice pair of <coughs> to a person is all it takes for this punk kid to get his crap together. Bright orders everyone to combat stations, and we get the first mention of one of the biggest pseudoscience things in Mobile Suit Gundam, the Minofsky Particle. I'm not going to go too far into what this is, simply because it's mainly techno-babble for the story, but from the wikis and research I've read, it's a newly discovered atomic-sized particle that disrupts electronics heavily. It's the reason for massive radar jamming requiring most things like space cruisers and um, land ships and vehicles to be able to um, find each other is to be in visual range of each other, which when you're dealing in space distances is throwing a needle in a haystack, but it's the only way it works. It's also responsible for long-range communications to look like something out of a 1950s television set with a badly aligned antenna. I also think it's part of the main reason why mobile suits are able to work, but I'm not 100% on that. So, for real world, it's what allows old-school World War II tactics to work instead of advanced scanners, radar, LIDAR, um, detection methods. You know, technology has advanced so highly with stealth and um, covert de covert measures, technology had to loop back around to the old school methods for it to even work. The particle itself is apparently made from the reactors of these various ships, and it also helps disrupt missile tracking and computer targeting, so it is a useful tool. It just gets overplayed a little, in my opinion. It's kind of like reversing polarity. If you need something done, mess with a Minofsky particle. So the Gundam launches, and Amuro finally figures out what massive acceleration from being at rest feels like, and the Gundam hurdles headfirst into space. It honestly does look a little odd, as it's a more upright human cannonball and less epic robot. 
I do like later Gundam series where the Gundam is fully upright and the back thrusters are blazing behind it. But that's just because I grew up with those. Maybe it'll change later in the uh, in the story. But this is its first launch, so I'm just going off what I'm seeing here. Operator Bill detects missiles heading for them as the Gundam clears the deck and issues directions for Mirai to dodge them. Mirai doesn't realize Bill's speaking to her until Bright orders the same course. She hurriedly tries to adjust the ship's heading, but the delay costs them crucial evasion time. Bright is about to order all hands to brace for impact, before Amaro pipes up that he could just shoot them down himself, right? Does anyone even have to answer that at this point? Amaro quickly shoots down both missiles, and I just want to point out that the art shows that Whitebase is firing its own anti-air barrage, and I like that because it adds another point of realism to this story. Just as the crew breathes a sigh of relief, and I do mean that literally, Bill has some more bad news. More high-speed heat sources are detected, and they are estimated to be mobile suits. Navigator Ted assists with the tracking and mentions that one is moving slightly faster than the others. About three times faster, in fact. And now, here's another one of my favorite Gundam tropes. If you're an antagonist with a penchant for keeping your face hidden and really, really love the color red, you don't just drive a regular Zaku 2, or a regular jobber suit. Oh no, my friends. You don't even drive the slightly souped-up commander versions with a cool mohawk. You drive the Italian-made, handcrafted from scratch Ferrari with a maximum acceleration and speed that's three times faster than anything else in the army. And if it doesn't come in cherry red, truly God be with you for no one else will. Captain Paulo, hey, uh, you know, I forgot he wasn't dead. I'm not dead. Sorry about that, Captain immediately realizes its char, and it's either the battle runes or the fact that the Xeon equivalent of the Red Baron is bearing down on them. And no, I'm not talking about Johnny Ridden as he's not in this story. I think. I mean, it's a long time before we get to where he supposedly exists. Ah, side manga. I love you. But judging from the captain's face, I'm pretty sure he just crapped himself. He informs the entire bridge crew that Char is personally responsible for the destruction of five Federation battleships at the Battle of Loom, or, to put it another way, Space Midway. And believe me, we'll be getting into that battle later. How do I know? Book 7 of the 12-book series is titled The Battle of Loom, so that was a good hint. He immediately orders White Base to withdraw, but it's already too late. The White Common has come out to play, and he won't be denied the chance to put the Federation's new mobile suit in the ground, or sparking wreckage floating in the void. You know what I mean. So let's take a small break here as I refresh my tea, plug some promos for some podcasts I enjoy and think you might too, and when we return, we get another classic Gundam moment, the single panel that made me want to do this show in the first place, and Amuro is about to find out war is nothing like Call of Duty Advanced Mobile Suit Warfare. We'll be right back. In fact, I think we should record a promo about all the changes to the Fire and Water Podcast Network happening this year. What do you think, Rob? That's a great idea. We can mention the new folks joining the network and all the shows. I can talk about how we'll continue with our Aquaman and Firestorm show, and I want to be sure to plug my movie show, The Film and Water Podcast. What about you, Ryan? 
Oh, I think we should definitely record a promo. I'll mention how the Secret Origins podcast is joining the Fire and Water Network, and then I'll introduce my newly relaunched shows, Give Me Those Star Wars and Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Sound good to you, Chris? Absolutely. I'll mention the show I record with my lovely wife, Cindy, Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. We should probably also mention the Power Records podcast Rob and I do, too. What about you, Siskoid? Well, sure. I can talk about my ensemble show, The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, and my new upcoming shows about the DC Comics crossover event, Invasion, and yes, Oh Hot Moo. Shag, you think we should mention Hero Points, the most occasional DC Heroes role-playing podcast? Sure, why not? And I can talk about Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, and mention my new upcoming show, Justice League International, Wahaha Podcast. Now, Here's what I'm thinking. When we record, I'm fine being the first person talking. I can explain all the changes to the Wait network. a minute, wait a minute, wait. Why do you get to start the promo? I'm just as much of a part of this as you are. It was my idea to create the Fire and Water podcast back in 2011. I should start off this promo. I kind of think it should be one of the new voices who kick off the promo. It'll shock the listener into attention if it's not Rob or Shag. Cindy and I make up two people in the network. Plus, you know, ladies first. So we should be the first people talking on the promo. Ben voyons donc. You have what? got uh, what? to be the Enough! Stop it. You're like boys with toys. Let's just make this simple. We can tell the folks at home the Fire and Water Podcast Network is growing in 2016. Several new shows are joining the network. We'll have a new dedicated website, a Twitter account, and Facebook page. And folks will be able to subscribe to each individual show or all of them. See? Now, was that so hard? Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available soon through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fireandwaterpodcast.com. Seriously, Shag, you had to get the last word, didn't you? So we start Chapter 5 with the Red Comet bearing down on him. Sayla is screaming at Amuro to retreat back to White Base. Amuro, feeling a mite confident since he took out two Zakus on his own with just the beam saber, figures he can easily shoot Char Zaku down. I mean, he's only the ace pilot of the Federate of, only the ace pilot of Zeon. <laughs> we also get another nice little Star Wars reference as the Gundam's targeting computer flips around the pilot's seat and covers the right eye, just like the targeting computers we see the X and Y wings use in the Death Star trench runs. And at this point, I'm beginning to think that maybe George Lucas should have sued Sunrise instead of Galactica's producers at Universal. Amuro locks on and fires, but Char easily side-strafes past the beam, leaving Amuro wide-eyed. <laughs> Amuro has about two seconds to realize he done goofed because the Gundam is rocked by gunfire. Char is surprised he did no damage, but figured it was because of the Gundam's shield. Amuro fires again, and misses. He fires again, and misses. He fires yet again, and say it with me, he misses. Char continues toying with the Gundam like my cats with a mouse, and manages to just damage the main camera. Okay, for just about every Gundam show, the main cameras in a Gundam are the eyes. I mean, it makes sense. Eyes, cameras. Well, in Gundam Origin and the original anime, the main camera is apparently located in the red centerpiece of the main headdress. Why? I don't know. I mean, if it was misdirection, I'm pretty sure that any shot taken at the head would also destroy the centerpiece anyway, along with, you know, most of the head. So, it just doesn't really make sense to me. 
but that's what it is, so that's what we just have to deal with. Anyhow, Amaro activates the subcamera, which, judging from the angle and following panels, is located around the Gundam's chest and cockpit area. And then we get the panel that inspired this podcast. It'll be in the uh, White Base Chronicles blog, because it's there's no question on that one. Also, in addition to the inspiration of the show, that panel was the inspiration for that image blog. <laughs> but let me describe it for you, in case you just want to hear the audio. It's just a camera outline, with Zaku's foot bearing down on it. That doesn't sound scary. This is where the... But here's the kicker. The foot is about... Oh... 10 feet from the camera. So... It takes up most of the panel of the shot with a little bit of Zaga in the back. So, yeah, it looks freaking awesome. So, at at the point of con- at this point of contact, Char proceeds to kick the Gundam. This is easily one of the most iconic shots in the 40 years of the Gundam franchise. In fact, it's it's so iconic that in the 40 years of the Gundam franchise, any antagonist mobile suit that's red has to homage this kick at some point in the series because it looks that great. But Yasuhiko-san isn't done. He decided to improve a classic. How? He had Char do this kick a few more times in such a rapid succession it do Street Fighter's Chun-Li proud. So now, instead of just the Zaku kick, we get the Zaku curb stomp. You know, Amuro is really glad at this moment he figured out how to properly buckle the seatbelt because now he's the gene to Char's Amuro. Slender, oh yeah, hey, I forgot about him, finally catches up and now the Gundam is facing a pincer attack from both sides and Amuro is barely conscious at this point. We cut to White Base with Bright doing some pretty awesome captaining by ordering the main guns, which are called Mega Particle Cannons. I have no idea what that means, except for big shooty beams of Daka. Wog. Uh, sorry, I've been reading a lot of Warhammer 40k stuff lately. To support the Gundam, Amuro's all. Uh, how can I lose when I have the latest mall? I've got the iPod Touch, and these guys are still using Zunes. Also, in my opinion, I do think the Zune was a superior MP3 player, but I'm running out of analogies that don't require the audience to break out a wiki for. In fact, actually they may have to on this one. Amro pulls off a pretty sweet move by hiding behind a shield so it's the only thing visible, then kicks off it while the Zakus are still firing at the shield to line up a shot on Slender. I give, I try to be fair and give credit where credit is due, and that's a good move that even caught Char by surprise. Unfortunately, he misses Slender. And, side note, it's a bit different when the, en- when the enemy expects you to fight and is now ready for you, isn't it, Amaro? And the two Zakus resume their crossfire on the Gundam. As the three mobile suits bank and swerve around each other, eventually Slender and the Gundam's targeted computer line up, and Amaro lands a direct hit on Slender Zaku with the suit exploding into tiny bits. Chara estimates that somehow the Federation has managed to miniaturize their beam technology, as the Gundam's beam rifle is packing the same firepower as the guns of a Federation battleship. Despite Sailor's warnings, Amuro goes all serophagus.
suppressing fire with the beam rifle and hits everything around Char, but not the Zaku. He smashes the trigger harder than an MMA fighter hitting a punching bag, but can you guess what happens, friends? I mean, what? Go on, guess. I'll wait. If you said nothing, you win the QB doll. Because, yeah, we didn't just set up that whole ammo count thing for nothing. Char, being a seasoned soldier and realizing probably what just happened, goes back on the offensive. And, you know, if I could say a giant robot spanked another robot, that would be the closest I could come to describing what Char does to the Gundam. And, in fact, I just said it, so yeah, that's what the, the best I can come to Char describing what a Gundam does. Did I mention I'm also on allergy pills, so I'm a little woohoo! This is just a brutal attack. In fact, the only thing that stops Char from mashing the Gundam into little white bits is a cannon blast from White Base, which also confirms Char's suspicions that this Federation supply ship was anything but. Now outgunned himself and running low on ammo, Char retreats to the Musai. An exhausted Amuro barely manages to get the Gundam back to the ship. While it's docking, Ryu stops Kai and Hayato from entering the still-pressurizing hangar. Kai mentions to Hayato that the rumor around the ship is that Amuro is piloting, and Hayato jumps about half his height off the deck. Considering the gravity is low in this part of the ship, any higher, Hayato, and you'd have gone vertical. Well, as the still-smoking and pitted Gundam completes its docking and maintenance teams scramble to get it back in order, the white base finally departs Side 7 airspace. We cut to Char's cruiser, where he's meeting with the head of the Xeon Space Forces, Vice Admiral Dolzol Zabi. Wait, he's the fleet commander and only a Vice Admiral? Hm, I guess nepotism can only get you so far. Well, it appears the towering Admiral is a might put out that the grand victory banquet he laid out for Char was ruined because Char decided to make an unscheduled stop to Side 7. Dolzel's ruffled, fe ruffled feathers are quickly smoothed out as Char reveals that he's confirmed the existence of the Federation's mobile suit program and White Base. Dolzel is a bit shocked that even the Red Comet not only lost the Gundam, but his entire Zaku force was destroyed in the process. Dolzel agrees to replacement suits, but warns Char that he either comes back successful or there will be consequences. Trademark M. Middleton, all rights reserved. Quarter Bin Podcast Network. Did I mention I like to reference my friends and, and their shows too? <laughs> and it's solely not an attempt to get them on my show one day. <laughs> we cut back to White Base with Amuro and Ryu entering the bridge. Fra is glad to see him and Amuro returns a smile. The, he then looks over to Bright and the intense sparking glares of frenemy hatred pass between them. I'm siding with Bright though on this one. He's got thousands of lives to take care of, and he sure didn't expect that this morning. Remember, we're only talking maybe four or five hours max at past. This is still the same day. Three episodes, and it's all been the same day. Amro is acting like a typical 15-year-old in how the world revolves around him, while Bright is looking a bit more at the larger picture. He decides to do the stereotypical Japanese male version of praise. What's that, you may ask? He basically browbeats Amuro into how he needs to grow up, 
the Gundam is his sole responsibility, and how he either shapes up or Bright would be more than happy to shove him into an escape pod and shoot it back to Site 7. Amuro is all, YOU DON'T GET ME, DAD! and threatens to not go out in the Gundam again. Considering that this would be a very short story if that were true, and I think we all know that's an empty threat. Also, we better get used to this little empty threat, because it seems to be Amuro's go-to. Bright dismisses Amuro and strides to one of the bridge viewports, and Mirai is totally checking him out. Uh, I'm not kidding. Everyone else on the bridge, Sela, Amuro, Frog, Kai, and Hayato, why is Kai there, by the way? They're, wait, why are Kai and Hayato on the bridge? What is this? The so Again, is there no security on the bridge? It Anyhow, their faces range from deadpan to angry to flustered, but Mariah's smiling and her eyeline totally lands on Bright's bum. Our final page is White Base heading to Earth and the unknown future it holds. I know Chapter 5's synopsis was a lot shorter than Chapter 4's, but that's because most of the chapter was just the the fight between Amuro, Char, and Slender. So a lot of pages, while filled with awesome mecha fighting, a good synopsis, you know, in an audio format does not make. So that that's the main reason why, you know, the lion's share of this episode covered Chapter 4. And you know... Truth be told, I actually think that with Chapter 5 wrapping up, this is a pretty fitting wrap-up for the first arc of the story. Our main cast is set up, we know who the good guys and the bad guys are, and everyone is now able to take a little bit of a breath and um, start focusing on the future. Now, even though there's a few more chapters in this particular volume before we get into the next, and it's, it's kind of almost a, like a filler arc before we get into the next big story, which I have no problem with, this seems like the end of the first huge story arc of Mobile Suit Gundam. So this is a milestone for our show. So it really does read and it feels like we have set our table, everyone's sitting down, and the appetizer's about to come because Andy... Next time on White Base Chronicles. White Base reaches Federation territory. Hayato and Kai become pilots. Char gets resupplied. And trust me, that's actually way more epic than you might think. And a grandpappy Zaku one shows us mobile suit martial arts. And I'm left wondering if it can do the crane kick. All this and more next episode of White Base Chronicles. Who will survive? You have been listening to White Base Chronicles. Attention abound presentation. This podcast is 100% free and no money is made in either the production or distribution of this podcast. All sound clips used in this podcast are owned by the respective copyright holders and are used for review purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Want to see just what I'm talking about for yourself? Check out whitebasechronicles.blogspot.com where you can see panels from the manga that I've uploaded that tie into each episode usually captioned with my, quote, witty commentary. Want to follow along with me? Well, each volume can be found at various book retailers for about the price of a standard trade paperback, or for free at comic-walker.com. Just click the language button to switch to English, and Gundam The Origin is the first listing. The site updates one chapter monthly, and... Each chapter is in full color, which makes this a steal, and I would recommend you dropping them a line to thank them for letting us see this for free. And who knows, 
By the time the show ends, he may have the entire series available. Care to drop me a line about the show or grab the digital equivalent of a torch and pitchfork? You can send emails to lightbasechronicles at gmail.com or at Twitter at ahenley2011. Thanks for listening to my show, and please check out the other shows that can be found on the Two True Freaks Network. There's such a wide variety of geekdom covered that I'm sure there's something out there that tickle your fan bones. Take care, my friends. And in case I don't see you, good morning, good evening, and good night.